You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is uh, I Love You Keep Going. It is March 17th, 2022 at 7.35 p.m. Um, Pacific Daylight Time. Um, and I do want to make a comment on uh, uh, daylight savings time. Um, there has been a, a, a big suggestion that we simply do away with it and, uh, and that, that it doesn't really serve a purpose. And I can tell you that I'm old enough that that actually happened in my childhood, that they ended daylight savings time and, uh, and everybody was enthusiastic about it until school children started being killed on their way to school because it was dark and nobody could see them. So they've begun to publish uh, the counter argument to to this in, in the newspapers, and uh, and and it really does show you that if the sun if the sun sun rises is at eight thirty or nine o'clock in the morning, uh, elementary school age children will be going to school in the dark, uh, and uh, they're more likely to be uh, hit by cars on their way to school. So maybe the idea would be then to simply push the opening of school back an hour so only school-age kids could go back. But then the parents that had to take them to school then would have to come into work an, an, an hour late in order to be able to get their kids to school. Um, and then how many kids actually need to be killed on their way to school before it just gets changed back? So in my childhood, it was three kids uh, in the neighborhood that got killed before it got changed back. Christian. George, I have a suggestion that may obviate the need for all of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> a couple years ago, they, I think they put some kind of like jellyfish beans into like some pigs and made them like glow in the dark. <laughs> so that would make them more visible to drivers, I think. <laughs> So George, uh, you're seeing three children in your neighborhood got killed on the way to of... school. Yeah, they darted out between cars and got hit. Um, obviously, that like in every every town in America. I don't know, but it didn't last long. They changed it right back. So okay. anyway, um, uh, clearly having uh, re responding to Christians. Uh, comment means that we have to scrap what we were going to talk about tonight and, and switch to just talking about basic compassion. <laughs> uh, as complete a failure of compassion as I've heard recently. <laughs> it's, it's quite startling. Uh, so... Anyway, if you look in your local newspaper, you'll you'll begin to see these maps of when sun rises and when it gets light, uh, so that you can begin to understand the utility of uh, daylight savings time. Um, maybe the idea would be simply to uh, a, uh, not keep daylight the daylight savings time permanent, but the standard uh, uh, time permanent. But then we would have uh, afternoons uh, uh, in the in the summer the the sun would still set quite early um, 
and I do I do really understand the 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 depth of the inconvenience of changing your clock an hour, uh, which <laughs> I'm just trying to go with uh, with the uh, the reverence of uh, Christian's remark. <laughs> The, the the tragedy of that for for everybody anyway um we were uh, talking about uh developing mentalizing and so um i thought i would continue with this there's a a lot of moving parts in in understanding uh um mentalizing um part of it is of course uh the individual experience of it, the small, the one-on-one -on -one experience of it, the small group experience of it, the middle-sized group, the large group experience of it, where uh, as a society we are in terms of our our, our, our development through these things, um, you might say that we are in a, a postmodern or a, a transition between a modern perspective and a postmodern perspective. Uh, which I'm going to talk about more next week. But I am, and this is a, a list that's coming out of the meta modern movement, which is the development after uh, postmodernism. But I like it because it really does talk about the, uh, the these processes of the development of mentalizing or metacognition in association to your age. Um, so the, the zero stage is the calculatory stage, which is at the mo mo molecular level. Let's start at the, the very, very beginning. So uh, can distinguish between zero and one something versus nothing, much like a digital computer can only react to stimulus without any distinguishing for strength of reaction. Organisms at the edge of life like DNA itself Humans pass through the stage long before we're born, indeed, before we are even conceived. Uh, if you're curious, this, this is called the Listening Society by Hansi Freinach. Um, one is the automatic stage. Uh, the cellular level can react to stimulus depending on different quantities, but only by auto automatic response and never through learning. No coordination of different stimuli. There's... Uh, just a single stimulus response. Single cell organisms, humans pass through the stage before we are born. A sensory or, or motor stage, which is the second, which is the amoeba, can react in different ways to different stimulus, can uh, coordinate two stimulus responses, but not invent new responses, move body parts, for instance, a leech. But if you both shine um, on it with a lamp and shock it, with electricity several times, you can get a response um, to just the lamp as if there were an electric shock, amoebas, slugs, mollusks, early human fetus. Um, three is the circulatory, circulat circular sensory motor stage, insect, fish, newborn human, can react, touch, grasp, shake objects, babble, make single sounds, uh, can move body parts after having perceived objects and can recognize things. Most predatory fish, insects, newborn humans uh, are at this stage. Note that the the uh, cognitive stage can at this can be the same even if brain size, cognitive speed, and perhaps the degree of 
sentience very greatly, counterintuitive but true. The fourth stage, sensory motor stage rat, small baby, can do a series of movements that are calibrated after one another and build upon uh, one another to achieve something. This includes putting several sounds together so you can form uh, 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 um, a... Uh, um, a word, at least in the language prone species of humans, can use a combination of sounds to express something, but not yet a full word consistency. Rats, uh, young human babies. So the nominal stage, pigeon, one-year-old toddlers, can find relationships among concepts and make them into words, single words, explanations, knowing the meaning of a word, nominal, because you can name stuff can begin to understand what other organisms mean. Laboratory pigeons, one-year-old toddlers. Then there's the uh, uh, sentential stage, two to three-year-olds can put words together into sentences and see a series of simple tasks that need to be coordinated. Uh, imitate a sequence. This allows for the use of pronouns like I, mine, you, yours, it, etc. Uh, these being more abstract than names of things. Parrots, as famously described, um, can fall into this stage, cats, toddlers, around two or three years of age. Um, Pre-operational stage, three to five-year-olds can make simple deductions but not spot contradictions, follow lists of sequential acts, and tell short stories by coordinating several sentences, can use connections in humans if, then, as, when. Uh, connectives, uh, puts together several sentences into a paragraph, dogs and small children, three to five-year-olds. For all of you cat and dog people out there, did you notice that the uh, dogs are ahead of the cats by one stage? <laughs> we often have the, uh, I, I always like liken this, the attachment stuff. There's such an, an idealization of dismissing people that sort of haughty uh, uh, um, presentation of cats is often interpreted as a, a higher level of function. Primary stage five to seven-year-olds can do logical deduction and use empirical values, adds, subtracts, divides, multiplies, proves, does series of tasks on its own, can relate to, to times, places, can count acts, and relate to separate actors can construct relatively coherent narratives. Groups of paragraphs can create accounts and ideas about what's going on. Chimpanzees and rhesus monkeys and humans five to seven years old. So there's a natural progression that happens in uh, our development as the brain uh, changes. But still five to seven years old, um, one of the th um, the things about people who don't have kids is that uh, I don't think that these uh, operations are so distinct. Uh, and uh, if you don't attune well to your to your children and, and have an understanding of what uh, stages uh, kids go through and what the limitations are, you can always, uh, it's very easy, that is to say, to uh, uh, assume uh, that they have capacities that they don't have and to assign a non-mentalizing um, view uh, as an adult for a child that they're intentional in the actions that they're taking when in fact they just don't have the capacity for it. 
Concrete stage seven to 11 can do long division, follow complex social roles, take on roles and uh, coordinate self with others, can create meaningful concrete stories and keep the same story intact and uh, consequential over time, puts together groups of paragraphs into a story, can thus uh, keep track of interrelationships, uh, which is the best tool and how you um, <clears throat> And how you would test it, etc. Social events, what happens among others, reasonable deals, history, geography, normal in humans at ages seven to eleven, but also a significant portion of the adult population. In the famous uh, bonobo chimpanzee studies, there were examples of concrete stage behavior, such as testing several tools to determine which one would be best. So, uh, in uh, attachment. Uh, the, uh, we often talk about the role reversal uh, taking place at around age six. So this would be the development of the concrete stage, that when you have, you have the capacity then to understand a role and take it on and so that the, the parent could hand off the, the parental role to the child at about this age, but not really before. Uh, 10, the abstract stage, ages 11 to 14, can form abstract ideas and thoughts single generalized variables that fall beyond the concrete sequences of events in a story um, can make and uh, quantify abstract propositions, relates to categories, and uses cases of events to incrementally improve the understanding of these categories. Humans 11 and older are a significant part of the adult population, about 30%, um, no known non-human animals. So what we're talking about here is that the uh, when the capacity of the, the brain develops to the point that you have uh, the capacity for abstract thinking, um, without the instruction in order to develop that from your caregivers, uh, what we begin to see now is that 70% um, of the uh, adult population doesn't develop the capacity to mental mentalize at this level or that sorry uh, 30 about 30 percent of the adult population uh, is uh, is operating at about this level that's the concrete operational stage you're still talking about or did you move into formal operational stage no into the abstract stage which is uh, uh, between the concrete operational stage and the formal operational stage or uh, yeah abstract stage okay are you following along no, I, i'm trying to follow on in terms of piaget's stages of cognitive oh, development ah, different i'm map. trying to figure there's a lot of different maps it's really hard to try and figure out like so here's the introduction of a new map so i'm trying to figure out <laughs> oh this is the okay okay uh, the formal stage but where, what but i was just curious sorry to interrupt where do people is that within the book also that such and such percentage of the adult population is at such and such a stage of uh, cognitive development is that a part of that as well uh, right. That's what okay. it says. Okay. I was a just significant curious. part of the adult population, about 30%. Okay. 
the formal stage, ages 14 to 18, if at all. So here we have the thing that I think is interesting and uh, about the capacity to mentalize uh, and where you're at with your mentalizing, since it's so dependent on the environment in which you grow and the instruction that you receive. Doesn't mean you can't do it, it just means that you don't have the instruction to do it. Uh, which is part of the the um, point of the of our work uh, at Metagroup in in terms of of focusing intentionally on the development of mentalizing as as part of the process of repairing. Um, <clears throat> formal stage uh, ages fourteen to eighteen, if at all, can identify relationships between abstract variables and reflect upon these relationships, devise ways to test them, etc. Solves problems using algebra with one unknown, uses logic and empiricism, can speak a full, rich language with self-reflection, uses logical sequences of connections. If this, then that, in all cases, 14 years and onward, the most common stage in adult human beings, about 40% of the adult population, only uh, a my minority go beyond this stage. So um, one of the things to begin to, to reflect on is, is uh, where your mentalizing is. We remember in the attachment world, we talk about it in a one to nine uh, level and, and that they're exponential and they're in, in the capacity and that in secure functioning people, six and higher is required on the AAI to score. So the adult attachment interview, six or higher. And that dismissing people, uh, um, preoccupied people and disorganized people don't have that level of mentalizing. Uh, in the studies that were done at elite universities around attachment distribution, 65% of people were uh, secure, which meant means that 65% percent of people in those environments have higher mentalizing capacities. Uh, that would mean 35% of people don't have that. But when you look at a general population, uh, it skews quite a bit differently. Only 28% of uh, people in the general population are secure, which means 72% of people don't mentalize well enough to fall into that, that level of uh, um, functioning which is is, is actually even um, uh, uh, lower than what it's saying here systematic stage 18 and above if at all can identify patterns among linear relationships thus forming systems of relationships among abstract variables and how these interact can thereby also solve equations with several unknowns the first post-formal stage um, it was not described by Piaget, but uh, implicated in Kohlberg's work, begins to discuss legal systems, social structures, ecosystems, economic systems, and the like can be found in about 20% of uh, adult humans, usually after age 18. Um, <clears throat> so this is then corresponding more along, um, if we can just loosely um, reflect it to the attachment system. Metasystematic stage, early 20s uh, and above, if at all, can compare and synthesize several systems with different logics, 
put together meta systems and conclusions that hold true across uh, different systems, reflect upon and name general properties of systems, understands that things can be homomorphic or isomorphic, etc. Uh, this means that you can see how one system can be changed in uh, corresponding or different ways uh, to another system can be found in about 1.5% of the adult population, usually only after the early 20s. So uh, would you think of yourself as a systematic, uh, systematic thinker? Uh, at what point do you, uh, um, did you recognize the development of met, uh, metacognition or mentalizing? And did you move forward with that or did you not? Uh, did, uh, I, I wonder often if it's just a matter of the family system you grew up in and the modeling that you get. Did you have uh, uh, caregivers who uh, had developed beyond the, the, the uh, or developed up into this level of, of the capacity to mentalize and... Um, um, George, hmm? oh, can you review for me briefly, if you don't mind, the difference between mentalizing and thinking? and how that's relevant to attachment theory. Um, mentalizing means, uh, if we look at it through the Buddhist frame of mindfulness of inside, mindfulness and outside, mindfulness of outside, mindfulness of inside and outside, what you're able to do is track your own experience. That is to say, uh, I like to talk about it in, in terms of uh, comparing ultimate experience to conceptual experience. So you take in the data, you, uh, you have this raw, unfixated data, it's compared to the perceptual database. Uh, and then uh, if there's uh, entries in the perceptual database that are close enough to the ultimate reality, the ultimate reality becomes the conceptual reality and you form the experience of self and world um, is that helping at all? Right. And so why are we focusing on that in attachment theory? You're saying that some people get more of it than others. Well, can you track what's actually coming in? What you're, what you're, you're, what meaning you're assigning to it and how that affects the way that you create the experience of self and world. That's one aspect of it. Can you then, uh, if world in Buddhism often means uh, others. Can you track other people? Can you uh, interpret their presentation, their facial expression, body language, the content of their expressions, assign meaning to that, understand that it's your meaning that you're assigning to it, and understand why, based on your own conditioning, that would mean that to you? Can you track your uh, expression to them and the effect that it has on them? Can you then understand their expression in response to your presentation uh, in terms of, uh, if you don't know them particularly well, in terms of the meaning that you assign to it, but if you do the, know them well, the meaning that they assign to it, which is different than what you might assign to it, and then can you take in your reaction to their response to your presentation. And if you could do all of that in real time as it's unfolding, 
you could mentalize well enough. That's a lot of mental uh, metacognition, right? That is a lot of metacognition and you have to be fast in order to do it. And you can have that modeled by your parents or your nurturers or? Yes, they'll do something uh, like, what's going on with you? I can't make sense of what you just did. Can you explain to me what it was that you were thinking that caused you to do the thing that you just did? Can you understand how that doing that thing will have an effect on other people and how other people will perceive that? Can mm-hmm. you understand that when you do that, it has an effect on me? And the reason that I reacted the way that I did was because I understood it to mean this. And so you have the caregivers who are actively walking you through each of these stages of mentalizing as your ability to uh, process this uh, age appropriate, right? Through uh, your development. Is that making sense? Yeah, I think if if at some point I'll be in a class with you where it's actually demonstrated, it would sink in because I think I'm doing uh, I'm doing this, but not effectively. Right. So I'm trying, but I'm not getting the hang of it. I'm probably doing what I'm not supposed to do in in well, these back and forth conversations where you're supposed to be aware of reading what's going on and uh, acting appropriately. Well, understanding what your response to is, it is, understanding what you want to communicate, understanding that you're communicating it to a specific person who has their own uh, catalog of uh, conditioned understandings. Uh, And then as you get to know somebody, uh, tailoring your presentation not to reduce the authenticity, but to reduce to increase the effectiveness of the communication. Ah, that's important. All right, I want to learn that. <laughs> so, um, and remember, it's an exponential scale. So, somebody who mentalizes at a two is mentalizing at, at twice the capacity of a one. Somebody at a three is at four times. Somebody at a four is sixteen times. When you get up to a six or a seven, you can actually mentalize these uh, interactions. Uh, with with a um, you know a breadth of capacity that if you can't mentalize at that level you can't keep up you can't process it fast enough to really be able to understand all of those things and then you operate at a at a much lower level which does tend to produce uh, unskillful uh, interactions yeah. Is that making sense? I, yeah, it's starting to make sense. I guess I'm still in the unskillful, confusingness. <laughs> why I'm across the way I meant it, and while they said something that it's happening a lot, so I'm very interested and want to study so more. So one of the yeah. things to do in in that situation is if you notice that it hasn't landed the way that you thought it would, to ask. This is what mm-hmm. I was intending to communicate. What did you receive? It's like um, impact, no, what is it? Impact versus intent versus impact. Right, to mentalize that. That's, uh, So uh, if you remember the dimensions of mentalizing that we talk about spontaneous versus monitoring, you want to be totally spontaneous, but at the same time, monitor it. 
so that if you intend a communication and you see from the reaction that the person has that that's not what they've received, your intention is not what's happening, then you inquire and oh. then see if you can repair it. Okay. What happens when you don't monitor well enough is that you miss the the uh, the miscommunications, and then the then the, the the dialogue goes off the rails because you're each understanding something differently from what's being intended. Right. Okay, that's very helpful, and I'm sure there'll be more. But I see that someone <laughs> else has a question. Yeah. Jake, I just had a comment. I hope I'm going to be able to vocalize it clearly. It seems like your your description of metacognition is really sophisticated, and I was wondering if we could uh, introduce, uh, like we have the concept of earned security for right. adults ra rather than uh, you know like child. So maybe is I mean the way that you're talking about metacognition. Can we talk about like earned metacognition versus <laughs> versus like naturally Na conditioned native <laughs> lack yeah, of metacognition. <laughs> No, because it's really weird. The way that we're introducing it is we're taught we're using the theory of satipatthana with the internal and external. But what the context of that is about discerning a kind of ultimate reality. Right. So, but but that that's a very that itself is like the ultimate penultimate ultimate level of metacognition, isn't it? according to the buddhist teaching yes. so like it's kind of weird that we're starting with the penultimate level of metacognition <laughs> to try and repair our early uh misattunements which are like the lowest level so I, this is a little bit uh just something that's making sense to me now about uh -huh. the, the way this is coming together and i just uh, my question is like you know, we find that in the Vipassana teaching model is we introduce like the ultimate highest level of metacognition when maybe we're really not ready for that because these are really different subjects. Mentalizing for secure relating versus mentalizing for discerning Nibbana and ultimate reality. <laughs> these are like totally different. So maybe we have to be clear about that. Well, it's my comment. Yes, we're... Uh, why not be clear about where uh, the teaching is intending to lead us from the very beginning, but also uh, what we're attempting to do is, is understand uh, the nature of things. Um, how do you make up conceptual reality if you want to reverse engineer it? Do you, uh, some, somebody who doesn't mentalize well, thinks uh, in the non-mentalizing states, which is psychic equivalence, teleological mode, or pretend mode, in psychic equivalence mode, you think that your experience is the experience that everyone's having, and therefore you feel comfortable in assigning intention and meaning to other people's actions, because everybody has the same experience as you do, because you have an accurate experience of what's happening and this is in the west a huge bias because really going all the way back to aristotle uh, his opinion was that the senses take in the the experience of the world and create an accurate working model internally which is what we operate from 
and it's quite different in, 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 in Buddhist thought. So the first piece of that is to understand that to come out of psychic equivalence into active mentalizing is to understand that you make up your own reality, that there isn't a universal experience of reality. Um, that seems pretty basic. But then to understand how you do that is something else. Uh, you have the capacity of the five basic senses, which were part of the Aristotle's model, but also the mind. And it's very easy, I think, uh, in early meditation to track that activity of mind. So where, where, what do you pay attention to? So it, just the mechanics of that, you're sitting in meditation, your mind draws you toward particular objects. Why does the mind draw you to particular objects over other objects? It doesn't give you a complete inventory of all objects that are available. It just draws your attention to objects that are uh, interesting, let's say. Why is it doing that? And what is that list? And can you begin to track over a period of time which objects you pay attention to and uh, and uh, begin to understand that you have a hierarchy or a preference of objects that reflects your conditioning so then we have an introduction to an understanding of the preferences that we have uh, the aversions that we have so this is pretty pretty still pretty simple craving aversion Sloth and torpor, restlessness and agitation, doubt, the basic hindrances that come up in the meditative experience when you pay attention to them. But can you understand, begin to understand uh, what the effects of your conditioning was that uh, preferences some objects and uh, causes an aversion to other objects in the way that you uh, create the experience of self and world? Uh, when you're uh, talking about the world, uh, do you notice, for instance, that some people glow and seem really interesting and pretty and other people don't? And why is that? Do you think that your particular taste is a, a reflection of the universal attractability of some people? Or do you think it's particularly conditioned? Do you, do you have a type? Is your type the universal type, or does everybody kind of have a type? <laughs> why is that? Why is that? Why is it that's what's happening? Then you begin to explore the, the, the uh, these, uh, we call it fixed views in Buddhism, these fixed views about things that come up. Um, but in the beginning, when it's largely unconscious, really, you just have these whole things. I don't like that person. I don't know why I don't like them, but I don't like them. I really like that person. I don't know why I like them. I just like them. I'm drawn. I'm drawn to them. And then we begin to pull that apart so that we can begin to explore how our uh, conditioning manifests itself. <clears throat> Is that making sense? So you're kind of exploring the schema modes within the context of a deconstruction of the notions of self and world. Right. Okay. Um, what the insight, one way to frame this in terms of what insights you're looking for, 
in a broader sense than the 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 distilled teachings one of the one of the examples that I, I make sense to me is you know you go uh, for instance if you go to listen to classical music i i like classical music and one piece after another is just spectacularly beautiful spectacularly created it's it's and you you might think to yourself that all music that was written 400 years ago is spectacularly beautiful that people created these amazing pieces but what you you're not considering is that it's been distilled for 400 years and the only music that we're still listening to 400 years later are the masterpieces and all of the other works have just dropped out of awareness drop how would you even hear the mediocre pieces from 300 years ago have they even been preserved and so that that and also popularity uh, is particularly uh, important that's why one of the reasons why uh, where next week we'll talk about these societal stages because things that are popular over time um, tend to be preserved and things that are not popular over time don't tend to be preserved. And as uh, uh, tastes and uh, um, uh, change, different things are preserved and different things are exalted. An example of that would be Shakespeare which was repopularized in the, the late 1800s and then it really took off as as one of the, the you know the the masters of of literature uh, in the in the 20th century uh, and was taught universally to 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 children which would and from this exalted position but you know when you read uh, beyond a few plays, it's kind of vulgar and populist and uh, 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 different than than that uh, um, exalted positioning. Is that making sense? Are you following me on this? <clears throat> what is it that you're exposed to? What is it that worked for you and didn't work for you? How is it that you form the sense of the world? And can you track that fast enough that you're aware of how you're responding to the conditions of the present moment so that you can form uh, skillful intention and take skillful action in response to what's happening? So, go ahead. Go ahead. So, so maybe uh, a difference between your presentation of mentalizing and uh, therapeutic attachment meditation work and that of others is that you're starting with the sense of anatta or with the sense of selflessness from the beginning and you're integrating that through every step of the mentalizing developmental process whereas other practitioners or clinicians traditionally would somewhat be taking an opposite approach in terms of doing the schema work while developing the sense of self without deconstructing the sense of self so it's a major difference of what you're doing is that you're bringing in the deconstruction of the sense of self in the world into ultimate reality at the very beginning stage i just is that right am i understanding that right I, I would say that 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 you could say that that I would be comfortable with that. Okay. 
the reason I'm doing that is because the end the, the end goal is enlightenment. The the end goal is not to fit into your job. <laughs> Um, we need to also get beyond these these uh, these levels of mentalizing where we can't make sense of the system of the societies that we live in because we're in you know uh, you might even say an existent a period of existential threat to our survival on the planet because we can't not enough people can really track all of this stuff to make sense out of it and and react in a way that's even going to preserve us for 50 years <laughs> christian correct me if i'm wrong george but in regards to what jake was just asking it seems like um working the attachment stuff as an adult is maybe not um actually affecting the mentalization that much like Per, per the study that that ran your group against Dan Brown's group. Right. You had the mentalization gains from doing the Vipassana, um, that, but not the attachment. And their group had the attachment gains with much less in mentalization gains. So it seems like it seems like they have some overlap, but I'm starting to understand it as maybe as a child, you're getting you're getting these two systems worked on in tandem. Um, not necessarily that working on just the attachment raises the mentalization or just the mentalization raises the attachment. I think to operate securely in a relationship, you have to be able to mentalize yourself, your reactions to the other person, the other person and their responses to you at a high enough level that you can be intimate in the relationship and preserve it. That when you can't mentalize at that level, you can't really uh, engage in uh, intimate connection because you can't picture it. Uh, and so there is a base level of, uh, of mentalizing insecure relationships that aren't really in insecure relationships. If you, as an adult, do the development of the mentalizing to the point that you can actually mentalize well enough, but you don't affect the database, you're still having the same data create the experience of self and world that you did before. So the way that I would interpret that is you increase your capacity to mentalize, but if you don't intentionally update the database, you're just processing the same conditioned information uh, faster. So maybe the relationships are less uh, volatile and, and, and uh, more um, conducive to, uh, you know, a smoother interaction, but it doesn't produce the fundamental uh, changes in the way that you perceive yourself and the limitations that you have, and also the, the capacity to um, be in relationship to other people. Is that making sense? So that you, you can't do one, you have to do both. You have, in fact, you have to do all three, really, in, in terms of the three pillar approach for it, it to be effective. We were already doing two pillars of it, which we uh, created independently of Dan's group and then the addition of the uh, the ideal parent figure or the, the remapping of the database is what really um, changed it. That, that just seems so consistent with what I've observed 
in my own lived experience of being a meditator and being in meditation communities where the teaching of metacognition is just, it can be very high. And the understanding for the need of good relationships is, is, it's obviously there. We understand we need good relationships, but without actually going through this process of changing one's mind about attachment and understanding attachment and kind of healing those wounds, nothing changes. I mean, right. I just want to give that feedback that that's really what I've seen as well. Because yeah. you just keep creating the same self in the same world faster. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, right, right. Or, or, you, or you just mentalize it away. You say, well, it doesn't, I don't ultimately exist. You know, you, <laughs> right. you, they, they just have a good skill of mentalizing that, you know, everything's impermanent and not self. Right. So you can't you really do anything about it. That's you basically slip the off the nihilism cliff <laughs> instead of taking the turn to the left to uh, or it's, engage. It's just accepted. You know, right. it's just accepted that we we have these teachings of you know the Brahma Viharas, and we know we have to act in this. We know it's our religion to act in this better way, but we it doesn't happen. It just doesn't right. happen. So I just wanted to comment. All right, good. Uh, Cindy, did you have a last question? I know we didn't get to you. Um, no, that's all right. Just keep going. I'm just trying to follow. Yeah. Oh, okay. So uh, let's do some meditation. Enough talking. Um, and uh, let's do a, a basic uh, see here feel technique organized around mentalizing. So. We'll do a focus in, focus out strategy on that. And we'll begin with a few minutes of um So how did that go? George, you present the um the like rhythmic noting versus the 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 deeper noting as like a matter of personal preference. Yeah. It, it seems like that choice itself would be sort of strategic in terms of mentalizing like like one um like one would tend more towards spontaneity the other would tend more towards monitoring, monitoring. and so it strikes me that 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 itself like you, you present it as kind of this personal preference but it seems like it could also be used strategically too right yeah i hadn't thought of it but i i agree with you it could be if you're too, uh, if you're dismissing and monitoring everything, then the freely moving would be an antidote to that. And if you're totally spontaneous and preoccupied, uh, the rhythmic noting might help reinforce the monitoring. Good insight. So wait, what does it mean that I I've always preferred the uh, <laughs> the, the the not rhythmic noting? Um, that you're just reinforcing your conditioning. Great. <laughs> All right. Noted. Jake. I was just going to suggest that, um, or I was going to ask, why, why don't, when you teach meditation, why don't you use the sort of hypnotic suggestion that you seem to use when you do your attachment work? Because I think it's quite nice. I think it's quite uh, nice. For instance, before you ring the bell, you could mention like now we're coming back to the present moment experience 
even though oh. we're in the present moment experience, but it's or, too jarring. It, it's way too jarring for me, just like because I was deep in a state of uh, a different state of perception. And it's just like, ding, okay, come back now. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all right I, I, i'm going to take that to heart uh I, I have had that feedback before okay it just that 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 you presented it in a way that i could take in and the other person didn't <laughs> good um i mean at, at some level, when the mind moves into the different state of perception, the whole presentation of self and world, I, I mean, I can't listen to words often when I meditate. Instruction, right. basically, I, what I'm able to do, I just clear out all information. Like I hear words, but they have no meaning in my right, mind right. up until the point where I've cleared out all the information from my mind. And then I'm available to listen if something is resonant. So I can hear just a couple words of instruction 15 minutes into the practice. And then all of a sudden it's very meaningful mm. and very effective. Um, and one thing that came up for me was some, somewhere late into the, uh, or not, you know, somewhere in the middle of the practice, you brought up the topic of self and world, but it was already when my mind had retracted from the uh, grasping to the sense of self and world. And I thought, what are you, what are you talking about? What is self in the world? It's just <laughs> the present moment. This is the experience. How can you differentiate the self in the world? It doesn't even make any sense because the self does am I crazy? Do you know what I mean? I like do. The, the, self, the self and the world, what are we talking about? It's just a mental construct in our mind. And when exactly. we come out of that mental construct, then reintroducing it, like it makes no sense. What, what's self in the world? What? Well, uh, um, hopefully I'll uh, phrase it better, but the elements out of which you can make self and world are those groups. That's what I really was hoping that you'd look at. But I, I do agree with you that ultimately it, it's just made up. And so I do want you also to see that it's made up out of something. But it just it just feels so dismissing <laughs> to say that, you know, to, I, I don't want anyone to hear that, that we say, like, your sense of self in the world is made up. It feels so cold and dismissing. Oh. I just can't tolerate it in a sense, even though I completely get it. But I just don't want anyone else to feel hurt by that. You know? Right. Okay. How shall we say it? Say what? <laughs> <laughs> you see the problem that you create uh, self and world in each moment based on conditions. It's not you that does that. It's the, the conditioning that does that. Ah. Okay. So your conditioning is creating self and world in each moment. I mean, don't we want a sense of you 
that's connected with insight and clarity instead of a sense of you that's connected with this this out of control papancha and creating creating havoc in the mind don't we want the sense of self to be oriented towards just clarity and insight rather than confusion and ignorance yes i, I think so yeah good Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, any final adjustments before we sign off? Um, <clears throat> Cindy. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying the listening. I feel like I'm with some people who are way more advanced than I am, but I'm following some of it. I appreciate it. Um, for me, I'm familiar with noting. I have not had a lot of detailed instruction like you give. And um, so I just remember it was seeing, hearing, and what was the other one? Feeling. See, hear, feel. Feeling. Yeah. But I have to admit, I am in a recliner and it's the end of the day. Not that I worked hard, but I think I just dozed a little bit and um i just noted <laughs> that with your voice and your instruction i could follow what i don't always do on my own but the whole um beginning part of concentration where you just count up and down i was like okay i'm doing it great i'm focused i'm Good. hardly seeing a beat i'm up and down I'm, um, then we got into the next step and I got a little lost um, and dozy and something I noted that I hadn't really understood before is some mechanics of my body, I guess, and the position I was in, but it even happens when I think I'm just sitting erect without the recliner is that um, I'll be sitting and the mind or the body gets so relaxed starts to doze and the chin goes up to the point where it blocks the throat and I hear myself snore. Mm. I'll do one snore and it'll be like the wake up to come back down and start over. But I'm I'm interested in how I can work. That's a mechanical issue of my throat, but it rises up until it blocks and then I hear one snore and I wake up. But I'm just wondering how I could weave that into the practice the one snore thing <laughs> well I noted it what you I might do is sit forward on the recliner so that your your back is uh, not supported because you'll lose your posture before you fall asleep and that gives you that that ready ready feedback the other thing i might look at is is it tiredness or is it sloth and torpor yeah because i didn't think i was particularly tired when i went into this call and i didn't have an overly active day but um how would i know the difference sloth and torpor so with sloth and torpor it's it's particular focuses that put you to sleep and so you counteract it by taking steps so you straighten up first then you open your eyes then you stand and then you walk to counteract the sloth and torpor 
while attempting to stay uh, with the meditation technique. Um, Often what happens with uh, uh, sloth and torpor is that you're focusing in on things that are uncomfortable, and one of the ways that the mind uh, retreats from it is by falling asleep. So, yeah, if I'm just tired and sleepy, you're saying that that is... Well, the reason I came up was you were describing being able to stay with the concentration practice pretty well without falling asleep. And then as soon as we went to the inside practice, you started to get drowsy. So that would be a a common presentation of sloth and torpor as opposed to tiredness. Because if you'd just been tired, you would have noticed it in the concentration practice as well. I see. And so sloth and torpor is a way for the body mind to resist or not yeah, basically. want attention? Like not want bored? to go into the areas that you're directing it to. Oh, so it's not getting bored, just a little bit more resistance. Like I don't want to go to scene or I don't know how to go to scene. Right. So I'm going to blank out because I right. can't. I don't know how. Okay. I bet that's right. And when I do more practice with you, I'll, I'll pay attention to that and also sit I'll sit in a different chair upright and see if that same thing happens. Because I think it's happened other times when I'm upright as well. So Okay, good. Yeah, thanks. All right. Um, thank you for coming. I, I appreciate your practice. We have a few things coming up. We have a level two starting in April. We have a virtual retreat in April. Uh, we have... Um, what else? We, we are actually going to do an in-person retreat in October, and it's a small retreat center, and it is actually beginning to fill up. So if that's something you're considering, I know it's a long way off, but um, take a look at that. Um, we'll do another series of level ones, but I don't think we'll do them until um, May. Um, I'm feeling a little overworked, and so I'm wanting to slow down a little, and also I think that uh, people are fed up with COVID and fed up with Zoom and want to be out in the world and the spring is coming. And so uh, let's all go out into the world and uh, keep safe and uh, enjoy that and then come back to practice. (laughs) Um, I offer the teachings here freely, uh, um, but we do hope that you'll make a donation and help support me and also the, the work that Metagroup is doing. You can find um, a link for a donation on the website. Of course, everybody's welcome to come and practice. We appreciate the practice too. Thank you, and we will see you soon. Bye. Bye.